Hello and welcome back to Rewildology, the podcast that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. So today I have another fun topic episode for you all that I want to break down. And today's theme or term is called biomimicry. Today's episode was inspired by my friend, Zach, who actually is currently in Costa Rica. And yes, if you heard the Costa Rica series, I did connect him with a few contacts down there. So hopefully he is enjoying his time doing some fun conservation work as well as his other shenanigans. But yeah, so he's like, you know, Brooke, one day you should do an episode on biomimicry. And I put that idea in the back of my pocket and I was like, huh. Well, I think now is a good time to pull that back out of my pocket and chat about it. So today we are going to explore what biomimicry is, what it isn't, why it's relevant, and the hope for the future. So let's go ahead and start. So when I first heard this term, I immediately thought of mimicry, which if any of you have taken a biology 101 class or maybe back in high school, maybe even younger than that, you've probably heard of mimicry. So mimicry defined by Britannica is a phenomenon characterized by the superficial resemblance of two or more organisms that are not closely related taxonomically. This resemblance confers an advantage, such as protection from predation, upon one or both organisms by which the organisms deceive the animate agent of natural selection. That is a lot of words. So in translation, that means that something that acts or looks like something else to take advantage of another species adaptations, you know, the the function of what it is to protect themselves or whatever it is that they are wanting to accomplish. So some examples of this, which again, you might have been exposed to before, is there are a lot of butterflies that mimic the monarch, which happens to be a poisonous butterfly. So if a predator sees anything that looks like a monarch, it knows. It's like, oh God, let me stay away from that. Those collars potentially mean that that meal might hurt them. And so they avoid it. Another one is there are a ton of coral snake mimics for the exact same thing. So if something that would normally eat a snake sees those same colors that a coral snake has, and even if it's a mimic, it's more than likely going to leave it alone and be like, okay, I can't eat you because you're probably going to kill me (laughs) with your venom. So I'm well-versed in mimicry, having studied biology for so many years and seeing a lot of examples in nature myself. When I heard the term biomimicry, I will fully admit that I thought that it was some sort of spin off this term, but I was definitely wrong. So the entire discipline was originally coined by Janine Bynas in 1997 and her book called Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature. And she also happens to be the founder of the Biomimicry Institute. So how she defines biomimicry as a practice that learns from and mimics the strategies found in nature to solve human design challenges. And from her book, she dives a little deeper into what the approach of biomimicry is. So first, and these are direct quotes, one, nature as model. Biomimicry is a new science that studies nature's models and then imitates or takes inspiration from these designs and processes to solve human problems. Two, nature as a measure. 
Biomimicry uses an ecological standard to judge the rightness of our innovation. Three, nature as a mentor. Biomimicry is a new way of viewing and valuing the world. It introduces an era based not on what we can extract from the natural world, but on what we can learn from it. The Biomimicry Institute also has a fantastic website, and I read it pretty much front to back to really truly understand how biomimicry is different from other forms of design. On their website, it lists the three essential elements of biomimicry. So the first one is emulate, which is the scientific research-based practice of learning from and then replicating nature's forms, processes, and ecosystems to create more regenerative designs. In other words, using sound science and research to deduce natural processes and then reproducing that function in design. Next is ethos, which is the philosophy of understanding how life works and creating designs that continuously support and create conditions conducive to life. And lastly is connect or reconnect, which to the Biomimicry Institute is the concept that we are nature and find value in connecting to our place on earth as part of life's interconnected systems. Reconnect as a practice encourages us to observe and spend time in nature to understand how life works so that we may have a better ethos to emulate biological strategies in our designs. And on that last note, there's a direct quote from the website that I think is insanely powerful and it is this, Biomimicry encourages conservation for ecosystems and its inhabitants because they hold the knowledge we need to survive. Oh, that is so powerful. And expanding upon that, as I was reviewing the mass of literature and peer-reviewed papers on this, I found this fantastic quote by Rajaskar Rao in his paper called Biomimicry and Architecture from 2014. And it's, quote, Animals, plants, and microbes are the consummate engineers. They have found what works, what is appropriate, and most important, what lasts here on Earth. This is the real news of biomimicry. After 3.8 billion years of research and development, failures are fossils, and what surrounds us is the secret to survival. Wow, that is so powerful. So in a nutshell, nature has already solved all of the problems that has been thrown at it. And so it is reasonable to assume that the problems we're currently experiencing somewhere in nature has already solved that problem. We just have to find what that solution was and figure out a way to apply it to that same problem. So to apply this, we have to change how we ask questions. Instead of asking a simple question like, how do I cool down this room? The question we should ask is, how does nature cool air? For example, what is the function by which nature uses itself, uses natural things around it to cool air? And then go out in nature and find natural examples where air is cooled and see if there's a way we can design a product that will then cool air using the same function. Another example is, you know, a big problem right now is plastic in the ocean. So instead of asking how to remove plastic from the ocean, a better question would be, or a biomimicry question would be, how does nature filter water to remove particles? Of course, the concept of biomimicry isn't new. Humans have been designing from nature for millennia. 
Scientists through time have even attempted to coin a similar term, but it wasn't until Janine came around to really place a good, approachable term on it that this field really took off. So now that we know what biomimicry is, what isn't biomimicry? So there are some other buzzwords floating around there that you may have heard of or read of that seem to have a similar meaning, but by definition, they are different concepts. And the Biomimicry Institute website also breaks this down very well. So there is an overarching word for biomimicry in related terms, and it's called bio-inspired design. And while everything in biomimicry is technically a bio-inspired design, not everything that is bio-inspired design is biomimicry. For example, there is also bio-utilization, which is the use of nature and design. There is biomorphism, which designs products that looks like nature. And then there is biomimicry, which creates designs that function like nature. So that is the key word. Biomimicry, function. Function of nature. So that is the biggest takeaway from this episode, is how can we use functions of nature in design to answer our biggest questions? So there's another term in the literature called biomimetics, which is used pretty interchangeably from everything that I read. This particular term was coined by an American inventor named Otto Schmitz. And the best article I found that really separated the two was by Denise DeLuca. And to her, the purpose of biomimetics is to research nature to find new and radical ways to design technology that will advance civilization for financial gain of some sort, while biomimicry is more about reconnecting with nature. So that seems to be the best difference that I have found everywhere that I looked. Because like I said, in a lot of papers in the literature and peer review papers that I read, they were used almost interchangeably. But biomimicry is by far the more popular term. So in summary of all of this, biomimicry is all about reconnecting with nature, researching how it functions, and applying it to design. So now that we know what biomimicry is and what it isn't, what are some real-life examples of how this has been applied? So if we go back to the Rajaskar's Rao's paper, Biomimicry and Architecture, He describes this amazing gherkin tower that was designed off of the Venus flower basket sponge. And this sponge happens to live in high water current areas. And his hexagonal skeleton is insanely resilient. And so the engineers and designers of the gherkin tower use the same skeleton structure to create the outside of the tower. It looks really cool. It does look exactly like the sponge, essentially. And of course, oh, and all of these examples that I'm listing, I have direct links in the show notes that you can go look at these as well. I'm going to do my best to describe them. I'm currently looking at them at my computer screen, but unfortunately, since you're not here with me, you can't see what I'm looking at. So I'm going to try my best to describe what these look like. So the Biomimicry Institute website also has an amazing number of examples from designers all around the world that have used different functions of nature to meet different design issues. Next, I would love to share this example from termite mounds. 
I'm sure that you've seen a termite mound, even if you have not been to Africa or Asia or other places that have natural termite mounds. I'm sure that you have seen them on a nature documentary, you know, of the Serengeti or different places in the bush. And, you know, they are these big, massive, sometimes multiple feet tall, like way taller than me, structures that are built from these little termites that can house up a million termites. And researchers have been studying these things because they really are a design marvel. And it turns out that they function similarly to our lungs for gas exchange. So termite mounds work by external solar heat creating air currents within the mound due to temperature differences between the inside and outside. So if you think about a termite mound and it has all of these tunnels going through it that aren't random, they are designed very purposefully by these termites. So the cool air inside is essentially moved through by the air currents on the outside as the structure is heated up. So it has a high thermal mass, the outside is warmed, and then it pretty much sucks up, fans out the cool air upwards, and ventilates the entire termite mound. Obviously, this is a fantastic ventilation system. And what's really cool is termite mounds were used as the design inspiration for the Eastgate Center in Harare, Zimbabwe. When Mick Pierce was asked to design the Eastgate Center, he was also told that he was not allowed to use an AC ventilation system. So to come up with a solution, he went to nature, and that is when he found the design of termite mounds and their perfect passive ventilation and air cooling. So I'm currently looking at a diagram of this very impressive building. I'm going to do my best to describe it to you. So on the outside, there are concrete blocks with a very high thermal mass, which helps absorb the heat during the day as temperatures skyrocket, as it pretty much always does year-round in Harare. It also has small windows to minimize heat loss and gain. There are vegetation on the outside too, which also helps with sunlight absorption and reflection. There are fans at the bottom of the building that circulate cool air from the ground upwards, pushing the hot air up and then is released through chimneys up at the very, very top of the building. This building is so efficient that it uses 35% less energy than similar buildings in the same city, which is impressive. And it is all with passive ventilation with the exception of the fans that turn on during particular times of the day to help with that air circulation. So next, let's turn to fashion. As we all know, fast fashion is the devil. (laughs) And that we all should be avoiding fast fashion as much as possible. And just to remind you of some of the disgusting statistics. So the textile market around the world produces 1.2 billion tons of CO2 per year and uses dyes that are responsible for 20% of the global wastewater. The industry also depends on petroleum-based synthetic fibers that account for 35% of global microplastic pollution. Ah, everybody go to your secondhand store. (laughs) Well, actually, wait till you hear about this company that I'm getting ready to tell you about. The Discosoma mushroom anemones make proteins that create vivid colors when exposed to sunlight. And this really cool biotech fashion startup called Werewool 
uses the protein that is found in this anemone to create biodegradable, sustainable clothing. And how they do this is they take the DNA from the coral. Don't worry, no corals are actually harmed in this process at all. So what they do is they take a little sample of DNA from the coral, find the DNA that makes this very particular protein that they are interested in, reproduce it in bacteria, extract it, and then they are able to make textiles that don't use any dye, are durable, and completely biodegradable using this structure. And let me tell you, these colors are amazing. Like they're bright, fluorescent, beautiful colors, and they're completely dye-free. All they do is absorb plain old sunlight. And since proteins are limitless in nature and come from all different sorts of sources, <laughs> sorts of sources in nature, they hope to revolutionize the fashion industry and to make it clean all the way around. These proteins do not use one ounce of dye. All they need is just plain old sunlight. So let's switch to agriculture. I'm sure that everyone listening has had that really bumming out moment when you pull open your veggie drawer or your fruit drawer or something else and you see that fungus is growing all over it. You see the spores everywhere. It's nice and fuzzy and you're like, damn it. And you have to throw it away. And it's just wasted food. So it turns out that 25% of fruits and vegetables produced are lost or wasted because of this fungal spoilage. And unless you get directly from a farm or some organic source, which are usually really expensive, a lot of companies are forced to use some sort of synthetic fungicide to prevent spoilage, which can be both seriously harmful to the environment and our own bodies. Additionally, fungi normally, through natural evolution, develops resistance to these fungicides, making them ineffective over time, which then they have to produce stronger fungicides, and then the cycle continues on and on and on and gets more and more environmentally unsustainable. However, oregano, yes, the herb, and many other plants have natural fungicides that protect it from fungal attacks. So this really cool company called Nanomic Biotechnology was inspired by oregano's natural defenses and created a natural fungicide that is safe for use on our food, in the field, and after harvest. Other companies are also using a similar natural antifungal chemical as a preservative alternative. So after listening to what biomimicry is and some pretty ingenious examples, I would love to take this back full circle because I'm a big picture person. Why should we care about this and why should we care about continuing and expanding biomimicry? And doing research for this episode, I came across the best explanation for our separation from nature I have ever read. And it's in a paper by D.C. Wald called Bionics versus Biomimicry, From Control of Nature to Sustainable Participation in Nature. And the book called Design in Nature 3, Comparing Design in Nature with Science and Engineering. Okay, now that I have the proper citation out of the way, let me just read you this opening introduction. And it's a little long, but please just stay with me. You'll understand why this is so important. Quote, 500 years ago, Leonardo da Vinci warned, those who take for their standard any one but nature, the mistress of all masters, weary themselves in vain. 
Did da Vinci foresee that the scientific revolution would set humanity on a path predominantly driven by the aim to increase our ability to predict, control, and manipulate nature rather than to learn from and integrate into nature? Galileo Galilei called for a focus on the measurable, quantitative aspects of nature and regarded qualitative aspects to be of secondary importance. Francis Bacon described the vision of humanity as master of nature. René Descartes created the conceptual separation of mind and body, humanity and nature, and subject and object into dualistic, mutually exclusive categories. He also offered the mechanistic clockwork metaphor. Together, they created the basis for a reductionist science of detached objectivism. This approach to science separated human beings as objective observers from their biological nature as participants in a fundamentally interconnected natural process. The root cause of the utter unsustainability of modern civilization lies in the dualistic separation of nature and culture. It is in nature that all people and all species unite into a community of life, yet culture is commonly conceived as apart from nature rather than a part of nature. Since the Industrial Revolution, reductionist science has enabled us to design a whole host of powerfully manipulative technologies which have transformed the planet. Wow. As a scientist, I've honestly wondered why our view of nature has come to be. If any of you have been in the field for any length of time doing any sort of observational study, I'm sure that during your college career, you were taught to look at yourself as apart from nature, not an actual individual in nature that is part of this whole system. I was taught the exact same thing. And through my own self-discoveries, I have found that this couldn't be further from the truth. Our separation has caused all of the destruction and issues that we have seen. And I've always wondered why that was. And it wasn't until I read these three simple paragraphs by DC Wall that it finally clicked for me. And I really wanted to share that with you in case you also had a similar just question mark of why, why is science so separated from the natural world? And that is why biomimicry is so powerful because it helps remind us that we are nature. And instead of doing our best to go against nature and her ways, we should emulate her. This calls for a different way of thinking. So every time we are faced with some sort of problem, instead of just coming up with some way that uses brute force to quote unquote overcome it, even though there's probably going to be unforeseen consequences somewhere in the future, we should be looking towards nature and how she has found the same solution already. We just have to go find it. If you're feeling really inspired or are running into some issues that need to be solved and you like to implement biomimicry, I highly recommend checking out these sources. So first, check out the Biomimicry Institute website. On the website, there is a link to Ask Nature, which that's all one word, capital A, capital M, which is a catalog of more than 1,700 strategies developed by the natural world, and you can search the website by keyword. There's also resources for educators, entrepreneurs, and designers. 
Also on there is the Biomimicry Toolbox, which is a step-by-step -step educational guide to learning more about what biomimicry is and how to apply it. So if you would like to go an even further dive beyond what this episode has been able to provide, definitely go through that lesson. And then lastly, Janine also gave a TED Talk in 2009 explaining the topic with lots of examples. Of course, all of these resources are linked in the show notes at rewatology.com. All right, friends, there you have it, biomimicry in a nutshell. If you have a question that needs answers and find a way to use biomimicry, or if you've used biomimicry in a design before, please let me in the Rewildology community know. Post it in Rewildologist Facebook group, comment on social media or on the YouTube version of this episode, or email me at hello at rewildology.com. Also, like I said before, please be sure to check out all of the resources and citations used in the making of this episode at rewatology.com. And while you're there, sign up for the Rewatology newsletter to stay up to date on all of the podcast shenanigans. All right, friends, thanks again for your time and for listening to this episode on biomimicry. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.